1: Even if I was a Kansas City Chiefs fan, the best news I heard over the weekend was that two hostages were rescued from Gaza. They were not released. The IDF went in with a plan and they rescued two hostages, a 60-year-old man and a 70-year-old man, who were ripped from their homes by Hamas terrorists on October 7th, and the IDF went in and rescued them. They were being held in Rafah, now the last stronghold of Hamas terrorists, where many Palestinians have been evacuated. And now the IDF, uh, I imagine, is planning to go into Rafah, but also find more hostages. Joining us now is CBS military analyst, Jeff McCausland, on the John Schuster Coldwell Banker Hotline. Jeff, so glad to have you back on the show.
2: Sure, Diana, great to be with you.
1: Now, President Biden said that uh, Netanyahu, that Prime Minister Netanyahu should not proceed without a plan into the rest of Gaza. Yet, doesn't this show that he had a that Netanyahu has had a plan because this was a very strategic plan to extract at least two of these hostages?
2: Well, I think I disagree with you slightly, Jordana. Is I would say it was a tactical plan to take care of seizing two hostages. No, by the way, there seems to be some just. Uh, lack of information on what group actually were holding. them. one of the challenges of the hostages is beyond Hamas, who we know has the majority of hostages, there are several other groups in the Gaza Strip that may have taken hostages as well. And we think perhaps these two people were actually being held by another group. So it's a tactical operation that's doing that. The strategic plan is how do you take Rafa and, and not make things worse? And the use of military force, I always like to say, is a means, and it's not an end. And the challenge you got is this war is going on, and it's relatively small and one of the most highly urbanized areas on the planet. You have pressed that population into a smaller and smaller land area. And there are estimates now well over a million people are now crammed into the southern end of the Gaza Strip, in and around, the, in and around uh, Rafa. So if you go in there, as you've done already, with, with a lot of airstrikes, artillery, tanks, heavy mechanized operations, the humanitarian disaster is going to be just off the charts. It's going to make what's happened so far look at like it was not very bad. And we know, we know 28,000 Palestinians have been killed so far, number one. Number two, you can say, and this is what the Israelis are saying, well, we're urging those people to flee. Well, the question is, flee where? <laughs> they can't go north. That's where the Israeli military forces are coming from. They can't go east into Israel proper. They, they can't go into Egypt because the Egyptians have been steadfast. They don't want a huge population ending up in Egypt, which would never be returning. And the other option is the Mediterranean Sea. So you can tell them to flee, but flee where? Uh, and even now, the challenge of that particular military operation could compromise, frankly, one of the most longstanding agreements, which has been a bedrock of stability in the Middle East, and that is the 1979 treaty between Egypt and Egypt. Uh, and Israel. So a strategic plan of how you manage all those problems, humanitarian, Egyptian, and what do you do the day after you declare Hamas defeated, I think is what the president's driving at.
3: On the question of Egypt, I guess, why isn't Egypt accepting some of those folks?
2: Well, if you're Egypt, I mean, you look at back to 1948 and you say, well, wait a minute, you know, 1948, about three quarters of a million Palestinians fled or were forced out of what is now modern Israel. And they were told at the time, and the Palestinians actually called this the Nakba, or the catastrophe. And they were told, okay, this is a temporary thing, and you're going to be allowed to return to your home. That was 75 years ago, 76 years ago, excuse me. Well, that's never happened. So you can tell the Egyptians, well, we're going to move, you know, 2 million Palestinian refugees into Egypt, but it's only temporary. And the Egyptians are going, no, no, we've seen this played before, you know. And if you're Egypt, you also have a problem already. You have, on your southern border, you have a large refugee population coming out of Sudan, which is in the midst of a civil war. On your western border, you have refugee population and people fleeing from Libya, which has been in almost constant civil war in some form of unrest for many, many years. And then, of course, in the Sinai, you have a, a, a problem that they've been dealing with, and I've met with Egyptians about that, and that is actually challenges from groups that are affiliated with ISIS. So why would we, Egypt, who are already having our own economic problems, uh, oh, by the way, want to accept two million refugees, Palestinians, with a very good possibility that they're never going to be repatriated, they're going to become our problem?
1: Why is there no humanitarian call for them to be displaced to either Jordan or or Egypt. You know, we hear a lot that there should be a ceasefire, which of course would give Hamas a victory. Yet, I, I understand what you're saying about Egypt, that they're afraid they're not going to be able to go back. But boy, isn't isn't it really more responsible to allow them access to safety than just they may not be allowed back or that's a future problem?
2: Well, certainly that's probably argument you can make. You can also make the argument that <clears throat> we really need to do is provide more humanitarian assistance to them where they are right now. And, of course, uh, and allow them perhaps to go back into the, the northern portion of the Gaza Strip, where many of them came from. As Israel begins this operation, potentially, to going uh, into Rafa, what they need to do, I would argue, is set up very, very deliberate corridors. that would allow that population to move back north where they came from. And
1: have they now, not that done sounds that? a
2: whole lot that's my knowledge. They have not. Or if they have done it, they've done it in a very limited fashion. And that's a huge problem because you got to make sure and differentiate who are actual people returning home from who are Hamas fighters just trying to infiltrate North. And I've watched us do that, oh, by the way, outside the city of Fallujah in Iraq, where we had about 300,000 people who left that city as we began the attack and then, and then repatriated. And that's a really hard problem. And then number two is you've got to make sure you've got the humanitarian assistance going into the Gaza Strip then writ large, which now is not happening, to sustain that population because more and more the crisis of humanitarian assistance in the Gaza Strip is off the charts. Very little very little food, very little potable water, the high probability of, um, of infectious disease breaking out. And then on top of that, of course, there's this problem with the UN agency that has been a long time in the Gaza Strip that because of the affiliation of a number of its members with Hamas, looks like it's gonna be disbanded or or not funded, which may be appropriate, but if if you don't fund that agency, then what agency provides that kind of assistance? And that's not something you can create overnight
1: And you make an excellent point that members of UNRWA are affiliated with Hamas. Uh, we're also learning, like, oh, well. that, and, and I think that was sh- shocking, at least to, uh, many people who are watching this, not to me as somebody who's uh, been aware of UNRWA sure. for a long time, but explain why it is so hard. You mentioned it's diff- it's hard to differentiate from innocent civilians from Hamas terrorists if Israel wants them to go back north, you know, the innocent civilians uh, to go back north. Right. Why is it so hard to discern who's a terrorist and who's not?
2: Well, because, you know, basically we're talking, in most cases, young men, unless you say it can only be women and children and elderly. We're talking young men. And this was the same problem we had in pollution. So a young man tells you he's a refugee and he's dressed and looks like he's a refugee, he doesn't have any weapons. He has identification that his home is in Gaza or Kanonis or somewhere north, which has already been uh, secured by the Israelis. Uh, What do you do with him? And the problem is that for the Hamas, we know full well, based on this extensive tunnel network that they constructed under the Gaza Strip, which may be bigger than the London metro, oh, by the way, that there may be the possibility of weapons that are stored, hidden in the areas that Israel has secured. That was our problem in in Pelugio, by the way, and he just goes back to his home, but there's a cache of weapons through the tunnel he's aware of where he can go to his weapons, secure his munitions, and then attack Israeli forces from the rear.
3: Uh, changing uh, gear here, uh, Colonel McCausland, thank you so much uh, for joining us. We're talking to you, uh, Jeff McCausland, who is a mil- military analyst for CBS News, a retired U.S. Army colonel. I wanted to get your comments on uh, what uh, former President Donald Trump said this weekend about NATO. Let's just hear what he had to say about that. I did the same thing yeah. with NATO. I got them to pay up. NATO was busted until I came along. I said, everybody's going to pay. They said, well, if we don't pay, are you still going to protect us? I said, absolutely not. They couldn't believe the answer. And everybody... What do you What do you make of that? What do you What is your reaction to those comments, which are uh, garnering a lot of criticism?
2: Yeah. I frankly find it, first of all, irresponsible, and second of all, a shocking lack of understanding by someone who was President of the United States for four years. Why would I say irresponsible? Because since 1949, NATO has been an alliance, which has been the bulwark of Western security, and the United States secures enormous value from that in a host of ways, uh, not only in terms of just finances, but in terms of the leadership we get, security for the United States, the promotion of democratic values, the international system created after World War II, which includes alliances like NATO, GATT, GATT as well as other uh, organizations of the international system. Um, so on the one hand, I think it's irresponsible for a former president to say that publicly and encourage Mr. Putin, who he also at one time called a genius when Putin invaded Ukraine. Second of all, show the lack of understanding because it's, there's, no qu- there's no bills to be paid. There's no bills to be paid. The basic running of NATO, every country pays, <clears throat> if you will, a bill uh, to run NATO as a headquarters and all the things that go on in Brussels. That's all paid for by the members. There's no argument about that. Mr. Trump is alluding to, I guess, is what they pay for their own defense, for their own defense. And NATO has guidelines, not laws, but guidelines that every country should spend 2% of their GDP on defense. And he's right, in a way, the significant number of those countries in NATO for a host of internal economic reasons, have yet to reach that goal. Many have now accelerated it dramatically, Germans, Poles, and others, in the aftermath of the invasion of Ukraine. But that's what he's really talking about, is them investing in their own self-defense. Now we could dissolve NATO if we wanted to, and decide it was not useful to the United States. I guess we could do that. Mr. Putin would be tremendously happy, and I'm sure he's very happy about these remarks today, but this might end up with a world in which the Germans, the Swedes, the Finns, the Poles, the Italians, the Spaniards, etc., decide that they all individually need to acquire their own nuclear weapons to deter threats from a larger power like the Russian Federation. It just seems to me that's that's a world that's less useful to American national security.
3: And, and on that note, uh, you know, we've got but there's a growing uh, appetite for in America of people pulling back on support for Ukraine. We've got Tucker Carlson's interview with Putin saying, oh, no, you know, the, 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 it's absurd to think that I, I, I'd go any further than Ukraine. Uh, I think I know the answer to this, but how uh, can we trust him
2: uh, on that? Well, I w- well, no offense, my friend. You've got to be kidding. I mean, yeah. I know, why would you trust Vladimir Putin? Right. This, is, this is a man who said, okay, I, I invaded – Georgia in 2008, and I was satisfied with that. Oh, I invaded Ukraine, actually, in 2014, yeah. and took a, the Crimea, and took the Donbass, and I would and started a war then. Oh, I interfered in American elections. Oh, I interfered in Brexit vote. Oh, I've interfered in European elections. Oh, I've ordered the assassination of dissidents and, and, and expatriates from Russia on the soil of Great Britain. <clears throat> would anybody possibly imagine... And this is a guy, by the way, in 2007, gave a speech at the Munich Security Conference in which he described the world, uh, what he called Ruski Neo and the Near Abroad, that is Russians living outside of the territorial borders of then the Russian Federation. And his argument at the time was, I need to get all those people back under the borders of the Russian Federation. So he's not trying to recreate the Soviet Union. Now, he wants to be the czar, Peter, yeah. the, Peter the Great. <laughs> so why would anybody who's living in Poland or living in Ukraine, or living in Moldova, or living in Estonia, or living in Latvia, or living in Lithuania, or parts of Finland, where there are significant Russian ethnic groups, or Kazakhstan for that matter, uh, believe Mr. Putin when he said, no, that's all I really need, any more than Adolf Hitler saying, all I really need is Czechoslovakia. I mean, why would anybody believe that for a moment?
3: Yes, there's many people who do, which is that's head-scratching shocking. to me.
1: shocking to me. Jeff thank you, But, Jeff, before we let you go, um, we love mining your sure. brain, but we don't know what we don't know. So on either of these yes, on either of these topics, is there anything we missed or anything that our listeners need to know uh, today?:
2: Well, I mean, I saw Tucker Carlson do his thing, and Mr. Putin gave this if you listen to that thing, you get this is the problem hiding in plain sight because he kind of refuted the argument that I'm on the thread if you listen to this sort of two hour which would kill you monologue by putin (laughs) which he he reviews russian history back to you know a thousand years 1300s basically telling you yeah that ukraine never existed and that kind of tells you so he's telling you what he believes the problem hiding in plain sight it's just like if people had read mein Kampf in the 1920s 1930s mr hitler was very clear about what he intended to do we just didn't believe him and sadly that's exactly what's happened here and you know uh, Vladimir Lenin, when he was a revolutionary and created the Soviet Union, used to say, you know, there are, in the, there are in the West useful idiots and we need to take advantage of them. And I think Mr. Carlson might want to read more Lenin.
3: <laughs> and if, yes. on that note, uh, Jeff, if Donald Trump is elected in November, I mean, is that a victory for Putin too?
2: Totally. I mean, the last time he was elected when he defeated Mrs. Clinton, if you look back at what happened in Moscow, they were champagne parties all across the Russian Federation celebrating the election of Mr. Trump.
1: I also feel, I know we got to let you go, Jeff, but I also feel like Hamas is the same way. Hamas is telling us, that, you know, death to America. After they yeah. come for Israel, yeah. they're coming for the rest of us. I, nobody's listening.
2: Well, they are, but Jordan. You might they threaten that, but I mean, let, let's be candid. Yeah, the Russians are an existential threat. They have strategic nuclear forces that could you know causes unbelievable harm in almost our existence in an afternoon. Hamas is a problem, <laughs> but they 're certainly never going to be or, or certainly are right now an existential threat to the United States. They may beat their chest a lot, and that 's fine, but they 're not an existential threat to the United States, saw- and their primary objective is to establish a state they can control in the Middle East and destroy israel that 's their really primary objective.
3: Last question, then I promise we'll let you go. Jeff. <laughs> I just wanted to ask you: you. Lloyd Austin is back in the <laughs> hospital. <laughs> L- Lloyd Austin's back in the hospital. Are you confident he can continue right. as defense secretary? Obviously, he's dealing uh, with significant I, yeah. health issues, and we hope for yeah. the best. But is this a problem?
2: Could potentially be a problem. I mean, I, I don't know. I'm not a medical doctor, and I certainly don't have the details. Nor does anybody. I'm sure of Mr. Austin's health condition, but it seems to have potentially worsened. Apparently, he's in a uh, uh intensive care unit, but that may be more for security reasons than anything else. But I'm sure that's going to be an issue. And, and he was supposed to testify, I think, on the 15th of February before the House Armed Service Committee on his unexplained absence or unreported absence, I should say, uh, and questions like that were going to be raised then. But that was pushed back to the 29th. I'm confident, sadly, that we're going to hear voices on Capitol Hill bringing that up more and more. But I'd just like to say one thing is, you know, I've met Lloyd a couple of times. I Mm -hmm. don't know him well. But this man spent 35 years in uniform, unbelievable sacrifices to the nation, and then took over probably one of the toughest two or three jobs on the planet Earth. And has served the nation, I think, well. You may disagree with some of the policies, but, you know, he, he worked as hard as he could for the last now three years. And I'm sure everybody of whatever political stripe listening on this radio, wishes uh, Secretary Austin of speedy recovery. Absolutely. Colonel, Absolutely.
3: Colonel, thank you so much for the time. Uh, we appreciate it. Thanks for going a little extra for yeah, us thanks,
0: today. Yeah,
2: thanks, Colonel.
0: <laughs>